0: Legend has it that the first Olympic Games took place in Olympia during the year 776 BCE. Historians have evidence of the first records from the games. Well, game. During that year, the only event at the Olympics was a foot race won by a cook named Corobas. Since then, the games have taken place every four years. At least, that's the theory. There have been times that we know of when they did not take place on their traditional schedule. For example, when Theodosius I stopped them in 393 CE while trying to push Christianity in Rome. But it was in 1896 when the modern Olympics that we think of today took off, with participants from 13 nations around the world competing in 43 events. That's the one that we now refer to as Olympics number one, or the first Olympics. Even in the modern-day history, the Olympics haven't taken place on the schedule of once every four years. In 1916, as the world was plunged into the Great War, competing in the Olympic events took a back seat to the death and destruction that spread across the world. They resumed for a brief period before, again being cancelled in 1940 and 1944 due to World War II. The first Olympic Games after World War II were hosted in London, taking place from July 29th to August 14th in 1948. After two brutal wars, the Games offered a chance for life to get back to normal. Well, as much as can be expected, I suppose. During the 1948 Olympics, a young American soldier named Michael Mooney was one of the six Americans aboard the Lenoria Yacht who earned 5,472 total points after the discard to edge out the Argentinian team for a gold medal in the six-meter sailing event. After the Olympics, Michael would turn to another passion, writing. Throughout his illustrious career as a writer, Michael would write eight books and numerous articles as the editor of Harper's Magazine. If there's one book he's perhaps known for, though, it's his book That was the basis for the movie that we'll be covering today. Released in 1972, Michael had already sold the movie rights to The Hindenburg before it was even published. Then, after publishing The Hindenburg, Michael took up sailing again, winning a World Gold Medal in 1973. Two years later, in 1975, the movie edition of his popular book starring George C. Scott was released as a smash hit, going on to be nominated for three Oscars. Both the book, and by extension what we see in the movie, tells the story of a conspiracy to blow up the now-famous Hindenburg. But how much of it is true? I'm Dan LeFebvre, and this is Based on a True Story. Before we dive into the story of the Hindenburg disaster, let's set up our game, Two Trues and a Lie. Now if you're new to the show, here's how it works. I'm going to say three facts. Two of them are true, and that means one of them is a lie. Okay, are you ready? Here they are. Number one, the Hindenburg was used for Nazi propaganda. Number two, the Hindenburg was the deadliest airship disaster in history. Number three, the Hindenburg made many successful flights between Germany and the United States before the disastrous one. Got them? Okay, now as you're listening to our story today, you'll find the two facts scattered somewhere throughout the episode. That means if you reach the end of the episode and you've only noticed two of the facts mentioned, the third one is the lie. It's really a simple process of elimination, and of course we'll do a recap at the end of the episode to see how well you did. By the way, have you ever wished you could get more based on a true story? Well, you can. Just sign up to be an official producer of the show and you'll get access to all of the past and future bonus episodes. For example, if you enjoyed the movie Kingdom of Heaven, there's over two hours of bonus content just for that one episode alone. And there's more extra bonus content for Becoming Jane, Das Boot, The Lost City of Z, Matahari, Breach, and so many more. Not to mention that there's plenty more coming in the future as well. Oh, and producers also get early access to episodes, so if you're listening to this on the day it's released, on Monday, then producers have already had all weekend to give this episode a listen, because they get episodes on Fridays. To learn more, hop on over to basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. Once again, that's basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. And with that, let's compare history with Hollywood's version of The Hindenburg. The movie opens with some historical footage from Universal Newsreel dated 1937. I tried to find that exact reel, but unfortunately I couldn't. That doesn't necessarily mean it doesn't exist, though. Universal Newsreel was a real service that offered clips of news from around the world and offered it up to the public, usually before movies in the theater since TV wasn't a thing back then. In this footage, though, we get a lot of details about the history of the dirigible balloons. You might know them now as Zeppelins, blimps, or really what we'll refer to them throughout this episode as airships. Those are all different terms for essentially the same thing. Yeah, there's technical differences, but let's not get too sidetracked from the point of this episode. After a brief history of early pioneers in hot air balloon technology, which it's pretty accurate, the newsreel talks about the massive size of the Hindenburg. The narrator continues, saying it's three football fields long, almost 10 miles, or about 16 kilometers, of der Lumen girders, and 16 giant cells containing over 7 million cubic feet, or just under 200,000 cubic meters, of hydrogen that they used to lift her 242 tons of luxury into the clouds. That's all pretty accurate. The airship known as Hindenburg was designed and built as the LZ-129, or the Luftschiff Zeppelin's registration number 129 by the Zeppelin Company. Not to get too far sidetracked, but since the movie does briefly mention it correctly, that company was named after Count Ferdinand von Zeppelin, who first began working on rigid airship prototypes in the 1880s. One of Count von Zeppelin's earliest associates was a man named Hugo Echna. In 1929, the Zeppelin company began working on what it would call the LZ-128, but then the following year, a British airship called the R-101 crashed, killing 48 people. The Zeppelin company realized that nearly all of the deaths aboard the R-101 came after the crash itself. It was because the R-101 was filled with extremely flammable hydrogen. Attempting to avoid this, they scrapped their plans for a hydrogen-filled LZ-128 and began working on an airship that could support helium. Basically, that meant that she would have to get even bigger and hold more gas. So, work on LZ-129 began in 1931. She'd get her name after the German president, Paul von Hindenburg, who was president from 1925 until he passed away in 1934. Unlike the plans for the 5,307,000 cubic feet of hydrogen in the LZ-128, the Hindenburg held, like the movie states, over 7,000,000 cubic feet, or 7,062,000 to be a little more precise. That's roughly about 200,000 cubic meters. Although the movie is correct in showing that the Hindenburg wasn't filled with helium, that's because the United States had a global monopoly on helium at the time and they didn't want to export it to Germany, fearing that they would be using it for military purposes. So even though the Hindenburg was planned for use with helium, she ended up being used with the more flammable hydrogen. And since we're talking about the Hindenburg's design and the sheer scale, how large she was, she was 803.8 feet, or 245 meters long, and had a diameter of 135.1 feet, or 41.2 meters. That's about four times the size of the two active Goodyear blimps, which are 192 feet, or 58 meters long, each. Or if you've never seen the Goodyear blimp, another comparison is it's about three times longer than the newest variant of the 747 Jumbo Jet, which is just over 250 feet long, or about 76 meters. Now, for some historical comparisons, the Titanic was 883 feet long, or 269 meters. So if the Titanic was one of the most luxurious ways to travel the oceans, then Hindenburg was the most luxurious way to travel the skies between continents. She was faster, too. Titanic traveled at a cruising speed of about 21 knots with a max speed of about 24 knots. That's about 24 miles per hour or 39 kilometers per hour cruising and about 28 miles per hour or about 44 kilometers per hour max speed. By comparison, the Hindenburg's cruising speed was 76 miles per hour or about 125 kilometers per hour with a max speed of 84 miles per hour or about 135 kilometers per hour The weather is getting nicer, which means now is the perfect time to plan ahead for summer fun. Personally, I'm hoping to be able to visit my family this summer, and that means booking flights as soon as possible before the prices go up. And now you can help ensure your money is there when you need it with today's sponsor, Earn In. Just download the Earn In app, verify your paycheck and watch your earnings tick up as you work. Access up to $100 a day and up to $750 per pay period so you can start making your summer plans now. It's free and easy to get started. Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in True Story under podcast when you sign up. It'll really help the show. True Story under podcast. As a little side note, there is a point in the movie when one of the passengers getting ready on the Hindenburg gets frustrated at the baggage checks beforehand and mentions she should have taken the Titanic instead. That's a reference I don't really get because, as we all know, Titanic sunk in 1912 before the Hindenburg was ever built. So yeah, I'm comparing their size, but it's not like passengers could have chosen between one or the other. Going back to the movie, there's a bit of text on screen that says it's April 17th, 1937. During this scene, we don't really see that much. It's just someone writing a letter. We see that the words Zeppelin and Hindenburg are used, but there's not much more to it than that. Then in the next scene, we're on the receiving end of the letter, which we find out is the German embassy on April 21st. That's when we find out the woman who wrote the letter is someone named Kathy Rush, she's played by Ruth Shedson in the film. We find out later in the movie that Mrs. Roche is apparently clairvoyant, but the point of this letter is really to alert the authorities of a bomb threat on board the Hindenburg that's made up at least I couldn't find any proof of a Mrs. Roche or a letter that indicated there might be a bomb on board but then again, the movie's credits call her roche r a u c h and the subtitles of the film call her rosh r a u s c h so I realize that's not really conclusive. I'm going out here on a limb, and I'm just guessing she's a made-up character. Not only that, but as far as I can tell, there's no evidence that the German officials, or anyone, really, was trying to secure the Hindenburg because of a potential bomb on board for this particular flight. At least, no more than usual. You see, even though the Hindenburg was used for Nazi propaganda, it's not like the Nazi party was loved by everyone in Germany. So, because of its status as being a sort of face of the party, it got its fair share of bomb threats. After the introduction to the idea that there might be a plan to blow up the Hindenburg with a bomb, we're introduced to Franz Ritter, who's played by George C. Scott. Now, Franz Ritter was originally written into the movie's screenplay as someone named Kessler. He's a fictional character, but he's based on someone named Colonel Fritz Erdmann, The real Colonel Erdmann was on board the Hindenburg for her last flight, but there's no evidence to suggest that he was there for security purposes like Ritter is in the movie. The real Erdmann was on board the Hindenburg as a military observer, something both the American and German military personnel often did. After all, the Hindenburg was cutting-edge technology. What we do know is that Colonel Erdmann was the commandant of the aviation section of the German Military Signal Communication School in Halle Anderzala, and he also wasn't the only member of the German military on board the Hindenburg. Also on board were Major Hans Hugo Witt and Lieutenant Klaus Hinkelbein, both members of the Luftwaffe. Soon after meeting George C. Scott's version or character of Franz Ritter, he's assigned to the Hindenburg by David Morrow's version of Joseph Goebbels. Unlike Ritter, Goebbels really was the propaganda minister for Nazi Germany. And while the movie doesn't mention it at all, this brings up an interesting point because before her final flight, the Hindenburg was used by Nazi Germany quite a bit for propaganda purposes. To learn more about that, let's, let's go back in time a bit. Nazi propaganda minister Joseph Goebbels offered Hugo Ekna of the Zeppelin company 2 million marks to help with the costs of completing LZ-129. That was in 1934. Then the following year, not to be outdone by Goebbels, another Nazi leader, Hermann Göring, gave them another 9 million marks on the condition that the Zeppelin company be split up into two separate companies. One would be responsible for creating the airships while the other, half-owned by the National German Airline, would be responsible for operating them. This effectively removed Hugo Eckener from running the airships that he was building and instead put the Nazis in charge of their operations. So when she was completed, LZ 129 or the Hindenburg quickly became known as a symbol for German technical prowess and a tool for Nazi propaganda. On March 4, 1936, Hindenburg's first flight lasted for three hours and six minutes. It was rather uneventful, but the first of a few test flights, all of which she passed with flying colors. Her first flight with passengers on board took place on March 23, 1936, as she took 80 people, mostly reporters, from Friedrichshafen to Leuventhal. that's about a mile or 1.6 kilometers away. After this, Goebbels' Ministry of Propaganda used the Hindenburg for a three-day mission to garner support for Hitler's militarizing of the Rhineland. After a particularly windy first day, March 29th, her ground crew lost control and Hindenburg's lower fin was damaged when it hit the ground. It was quickly repaired, though, and for the next few days, broadcast German music and propaganda supporting Hitler while dropping leaflets suggesting people vote yes for the referendum to remilitarize the Rhineland. Of course, we don't know how successful it would have been without the Hindenburgs' part, but we know from history that vote ended up passing with 98.8% in favor. She was also used for propaganda purposes at the 1936 Berlin Olympic Games, soaring above the stadiums as millions of citizens and visitors attending the Games from around the world watched in amazement. Going back to the movie's timeline, we learn that the Hindenburg left the Frankfurt Airfield on Monday, May 3, 1937. At least, that's according to the movie. And according to the movie, it's bound for Lakehurst, New Jersey. That's all correct. We didn't really talk about it at all, but the 1936 season for the Hindenburg was rather uneventful. There were a total of 17 round trips for the Hindenburg from Frankfurt in Germany to Lakehurst in the United States. Then, on May 3rd, 1937, she took off for what would be her final flight. Of course, no one knew it at the time. In fact, that was her first flight in the 1937 season, but they had already planned 18 round trips. Through November. Again, something the movie doesn't really touch on other costs. Now, during the busy season, it was $450 one way from May to August and $400 per passenger each way for flights for the rest of the year. You'd also get a discount with a round trip ticket, making it $810 for the busy season or $720 normally. Today, that $450 one way ticket is about the same as $7,708. According to the movie, during the Hindenburg's flight, there's a storm that she goes through that causes one of the fabric flaps to tear. We see riggers, including one named Borth, go out on the fin to fix it, nearly sliding off to his death before pulling back in. Carl Borth, who's played by William Atherton in the movie, is a fictional character, but his role on the Hindenburg was real. The three riggers on board the Hindenburg were named Chief Rigger, Ludwig Knoir, Hans Freund, and Erich Spiel. Now, the scene where Borth falls out onto the fin as he's fixing it, that's all fictionalized for the film. At least, there's no evidence that I could find to support that there was a tear that had to be repaired mid-flight that almost took the life of one of the crew. Now, I know it seems like the characters we've mentioned so far have all been fictional, but that's not to say that everyone in the movie is. It's just that most of the main characters are. So, some of the real ones were the chief engineer, Rudolf Zauter. He's played by John Picard. Or the chief radio officer, Willie Speck. He's played by Jan Merlin. And then there's more, but perhaps the most notable of the real people was the commanding officer of the Hindenburg, Captain Max Pruss. He was a real person. Now he's played by Charles Dunning in the film. Another real person on board was Edward Douglas. He was a passenger on board the Hindenburg. He was also a 39-year-old advertising account executive from Newark, New Jersey. He's the one that George C. Scott's version of France Ritter stumbles across and questions for sending cryptic messages. According to the movie, Edward is racing one of his buddies on board the Queen Mary, a steamer who's crossing the Atlantic at the same time. Although I couldn't find any proof of this little bet between friends, if the Hindenburg were to race Queen Mary, she'd win. The average time it would take Hindenburg to cross the Atlantic Ocean was about two and a half days, a speed that was virtually unheard of at the time. On the other hand, the Queen Mary was the fastest or one of the fastest ships at the time, earning the Blue Ribbon Award in 1936 for making the fastest crossing of the North Atlantic with a time of five days. Of course, that would mean that they'd have to leave at the same time. Unfortunately, I couldn't find the schedule for Queen Mary in 1937 to see if she left on May 3rd like the Hindenburg did. But seeing as they weren't really intentionally racing, it would be pure coincidence if they did, and I'm guessing they didn't. As the Hindenburg nears New Jersey in the movie, the bomb plot comes to light for Franz Ritter. Confronting Karl Borth, we find out that he does have a bomb on board, but he doesn't want to blow it up while people are on the airship. Instead, as a part of the German resistance, he's only wanting to blow up the symbol for the Nazis. Karl convinces Franz to help him by telling him either he'll blow up the bomb now, if Franz tries to arrest him, or if Franz will help him, Karl will make sure there's no one on board. All he needs to know is what time to set the bomb for. After some thought, Franz agrees. We hear his rationale as he explains, the, the ship lands at 5 o'clock, all the passengers get off at 5.30, another half hour or so to get the freight and mail off. The Liberty Party leaves at six thirty, the captain's fellows dinner party is for the officers starts at seven. Finally, then the ship isn't going to be refilled with hydrogen probably till after eight, so Franz tells Borth to set the bomb for seven thirty PM. That is all made up. Well, at least most historians don't believe it was actually a bomb that caused the Hindenburg to explode. Admittedly, though, it's tough to know what's true when it comes to conspiracy theories. After all, that's why those theories linger. Since the Hindenburg burned so hot, most of the evidence went up, taking any conclusive proof of what happened to her along with her. So, let's find out what we do know. Even though Franz said the airship was supposed to land at 5 p.m., the truth is she was scheduled to land at 6 a.m., not p.m. What the movie does get accurate, though, is that there was some bad weather that kept the Hindenburg from making their scheduled landing at the mooring mast. According to the movie, this causes just enough of a delay to panic Franz, who manages to get the location of the bomb from Borth before tampering with it just enough to make it explode. Again, all of that is made up. Probably. (laughs) That's what we get with stories like this where it's really hard to know the truth. But as I said, it is true that there was bad weather. Running into strong headwinds as she crossed the North American coast at New Finland, the Hindenburg's planned arrival time of 6 a.m. was postponed for 12 hours to 6 p.m. There's actually a photo out there That you can find taken from the Hindenburg where you can see the airship in the foreground with the Nazi swastika on the fin with New York City beneath it. Or another one of Princeton University taken on May 6th, 1937 with the Hindenburg high above the buildings. You can find them on a great website called airships.net or hop over to the Base on a True Story Facebook group. I'll make sure to link it there. With poor weather in Lakehurst as she neared, Captain Proust decided to delay the landing, instead flying just off the coast of New Jersey to avoid the storm. Finally, at 6.22 p.m., the commanding officer at Lakehurst, Charles Rosendahl, determined the conditions were good enough for landing. He sent Captain Proust a message recommending they land as soon as they can before the weather got any worse. It took a few minutes, but at 7 p.m., The Hindenburg slowly circled above Lakehurst as she prepared to land. That's when something happened that some think might have led to the ship's demise. Captain Pruce knew the weather suitable for landing might not hold, so rushing the landing pattern a bit, he ordered a tight S-turn in an attempt to change the direction that she was facing for landing. When he did that, some have suggested perhaps the tight turn caused something inside to snap. Didn't have to be much. Even just a bracing wire snapping could have slashed into one of the gas cells, causing it to leak into the air. An explosive combination. At 7.21pm, the Hindenburg neared the mooring mast, slowly shifting power from back to forward engines and back again to keep her steady. At this point, She was about 180 feet or 54 meters above the ground, and the first of the landing ropes were dropped from the front of the ship. According to a later testimony, one of the men in the ground crew named R. H. Ward claimed to have noticed some sort of fluttering, almost like a wave rippling across the cover. Another of the ground crew, R. W. Antrim, would later testify during the ensuing investigation that he also saw the covering on the airship fluttering. Experts indicate that fluttering likely took place on the port side near the gas cell number five, which is near the rear of the ship. Four minutes after the landing ropes were dropped, the first flames were visible outside the Hindenburg. There's been some differing reports from witnesses who were there. But some say the flames burst through the top, while others say it came from the rear, near the two ground crew members, or where the two ground crew members said that they saw the fluttering happen. After seeing the bomb go off in Franz Ritter's face, the film changes from color to black and white as we see the Hindenburg burst into flame. It's here that the movie does something interesting. It cuts back and forth between fictional footage and the real footage of the Hindenburg. That's probably why it switched to black and white. But, according to the movie, the crash lasts for about five minutes. I-, I timed it. In truth, it took a lot less time for the ship to be consumed in flame. The explosive combination of hydrogen and oxygen only fueled the flames as it took her down in less than 30 seconds. At the very end of the movie, we see some of the survivors, as well as those who weren't so lucky. And in the end, most experts do boil it down to luck. Because the flames ripped through her so fast, whether or not you survived depended heavily on where you were, where you happened to be located, when the fire began. Those closest to the front of the ship all died because as the ship sank to the ground, it was the rear that sank first, meaning a column of fire, a column of focused flames were sent throughout the front of the ship. Others that were inside the passenger cabins near the center of the ship perished as well. In the movie, though, we see quite a few people making it out of the burning ship alive. It's amazing to think about, but if there is a silver lining to the horrors of that day, it's that not everyone was lost. Of the 36 passengers, 13 died. Of the 61 crew, 22 perished in the flames. That means of the 97 souls on board, 62 survived. Sadly, that also means 35 died. The movie suggests the commission report says that it was one of three things that caused the Hindenburg to explode. Either it was structural failure, static electricity, or sabotage. For a long time, it's true that those were the three things. Those were the three prevailing theories. We already learned about the tight S-turn as they were preparing to land that some think might have caused structural damage leading to the disaster. Then there's static electricity. Most experts today believe that this was the cause. The theory here is that the storm built up a charge throughout the metal framework of the Hindenburg. The instant the landing ropes hit the ground, the Hindenburg was effectively grounded, causing the spark that caused the flame. Then there's the other theory, sabotage. It's clear from the movie that this is the theory the filmmakers were going with, but That's not just because it makes for a more suspenseful storyline in Hollywood. That theory comes from the author of the book that the film is based on, Michael Mooney, who believed it was sabotage. He went on to say that the saboteur was a man named Erich Spiel. That name sounds familiar. It's because we learned about him earlier. Like the fictional character of Karl Borth in the film, Erich Spiel was one of the riggers on board the Hindenburg. Like Karl. The real Eric was one of the casualties who never made it out of the flames that day. And yet, Michael Mooney claimed to have found his girlfriend. We haven't talked about her yet, but at the very beginning of the film, we see a woman named Freda Halle. She's played by Lisa Perra. Now, in the movie, we see Carl and Freda hitting it off at the Frankfurt airfield before the Hindenburg leaves. And on the day of the departure, Freda bids her farewell to Carl while wearing a black dress and veil almost like she's going to a funeral—perhaps because she knew what was going to happen. The author, Michael Mooney, claimed the real woman Freda was based on—who remained anonymous—admitted in private that it was indeed sabotage, explaining both her own and Eric Spiel's role in the plot. Michael went on to explain that he found evidence of the U.S. investigators being told to shut down the idea that it could have been sabotage because of the tensions. Remember, this was 1937. Nazi Germany was on the rise at the time, and the United States wanted no part of war. So what is the truth? Well, we don't know. Maybe it was structural failure. That sort of thing happens a lot with aircraft of all shapes and sizes. Or maybe it was actually static electricity. Although it seems odd that after dozens of successful trips across the Atlantic in 1936, this one storm happened to charge up enough static electricity to ground the ship when the landing lines were dropped. Something that surely happened every other time it successfully landed before. Maybe it didn't go through the storm, but was there any other storm that it went through and this time it happened? Or maybe it was sabotage. Some deep, dark plot to destroy the pride of Nazi Germany by someone who, as Michael Mooney said, hated Hitler. What we do know is that the Hindenburg disaster effectively put an end to the era of airship travel. Not because it was the most devastating, though. 35 people lost is horrible, but there were deadlier ones. The USS Akron crashed in 1933, taking the lives of 73 of the 76 on board, or even the R-101 which crashed in 1930, killing 48. We learned about that earlier. Now, Interestingly, the R101, after it crashed in 1930, the Zeppelin company purchased the wreckage and used its metal to fabricate the Hindenburg. The real reason the Hindenburg caused the end of the airship era was because it was the first major airship disaster that was filmed. People could see the horror of watching the airship go up in flames, watching the people flee for their lives on the ground. You can find footage of this online, and I'll make sure to post it on social, but for now our story today will end the same way the movie does, with a broadcast from Herbert Morrison. He was a reporter on location who recorded this heartbreaking audio explaining what he was watching. It would later be broadcast around the world.
1: It's starting to rain again. The rain had uh, cracked up a little bit. The back motors of the ship are just holding it uh, just enough to keep it from... It burst into flames. Get this started. get this it started. It's and It's rising. It's crashing terrible. Oh, my. Get out of the way, please. It's burning, bursting into flames, and, and it's falling on the morning fast, and all the folks between that This is terrible. This is one of the worst catastrophes in the world. Oh, it's just like funny. Oh, four or five hundred feet into the sky, and it, it's a terrific crash, ladies and gentlemen. It's smoking, it's flames now, and the flame is rising to the ground, not quite to the mooring mass. of oh, the humanity and all the passengers screaming around it. I don't, I can't even talk to people, it friends out around there. It's, a, it's, oh, it's, I can't talk, ladies and gentlemen, on this just laid down massive smoking wreckage. And everybody can hardly breathe and talk and screaming. Lady, I, I'm sorry. Honestly, I, I can hardly breathe. I, I'm going to step inside while I cannot see it. Charlie, that's terrible. I can't. I, I, listen, folks, I, I'm going to have to stop for a minute because I've lost the voice. This is the worst thing I've ever witnessed.
0: This episode of Based on a True Story was written and produced by me, Dan LeFebvre. To learn more about The Hindenburg, I would really recommend checking out two things. First, read the book that the movie is based on. It's also called The Hindenburg by Michael Mooney. As you can probably guess, that book takes the same approach that the movie does, that it was sabotage taking down the airship. Another great resource that I would recommend is the website airships.net. They've got a ton of great articles, detailed accounts, and photos of the Hindenburg and many more airships throughout history. I'll add links to that book and plenty more resources to begin your deep dive into the Hindenburg over at Based on a true Story Podcast.com. Now, before we get to the answer to the true truths in a lie game, here's another five-star review. This one comes from Dan4E2U over on Apple Podcasts, and it says, fantastic. Been listening to this show for a long time now, and I'm sad I'm just getting around to leaving a review. Fantastic show. Dan, your attention to detail is remarkable. Thanks so much for this podcast. I love movies more than the average person, and any extra insight into their makings or history is a delight. Thanks again for bringing the podcast to my ears. Dan from the Dan and Cody podcast. Thanks, Dan. It means a lot coming from a podcaster to know you enjoy the show, enough to listen to it for so long. Thanks so much. As a side note, if you're looking for a new comedy podcast covering pop culture, news, and pretty much everything else, go check out Dan's podcast, The Dan and Cody Podcast. And while I'm thanking people, I want to say a quick thank you to Stephanie for helping me with some of the German pronunciations on this episode. If you listen to the Das Boot episode, she was kind enough to help me through some of the pronunciations there. So when tackling the Hindenburg, I wanted to make sure I got them right. I knew who to call. <laughs> Although as always, if I did get any of them wrong, and I'm, I'm sure I did, I you can rest assured that it was my attempts in replicating the pronunciations that Stephanie gave me. Thanks again, Stephanie. Okay, now it's time for the answer to our two truths and a lie game from the beginning of the episode. As a refresher, here are the two truths and one lie. Number one, the Hindenburg was used for Nazi propaganda. Number two, the Hindenburg was the deadliest airship disaster in history. Number 3. The Hindenburg made many successful flights between Germany and the United States before the disastrous one. Did you find out which one is a lie? The lie is number 2. While there were 35 deaths on the Hindenburg, as we learned at the end, there were deadlier ones like the 73 souls lost on the USS Akron. The Hindenburg is the one that we remember though because it happened to have been caught on film and radio. And now it's your turn. Do you think the Hindenburg's demise was due to static electricity, or do you think there was something else at play? Consider this your official invitation to join the Based on a True Story Facebook group and share your thoughts with the community. You can also find me on Twitter where I'm at DanLeFeb, D-A-N-L-E-F-E-B, or you can unlock access to bonus episodes by supporting the show over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. And of course you can find the entire archive of episodes for free right now over at the show's home on the web, based on a true story Thanks so much for listening, and I'll chat with you again really soon.